This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome back to the Nevers Podcast. I'm Laura and this week's episode is all about our listeners. We're opening up the mailbox and devoting the episode entirely to answering your letters. Uh, we'll get caught up on a few that we couldn't answer in previous episodes and we'll answer a few new ones. And we have some interesting ones, so stick around. I'm Chirag and if you'd like to follow us online, you can visit our website at hbothenevers.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube at hbothenevers and at the Nevers Podcast without our name. You can stream the Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts. Ideas, interview requests, comments, questions you can send to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast and help us stay charting on Apple Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help us reach more listeners. First review we're going to read from uh, Ellie Marie. She gave us five stars and said, Wonderful. So many great insights and info. I always go back and watch to catch the things you mentioned. It's been wonderful. Thank you for your time and effort. Thank you for listening. Uh, The next one from JP Soso. Five stars on Apple Podcasts, the unofficial Nevers podcast. If you are looking for an insightful, thought-provoking and perceptive podcast on the Nevers, then look no further. This is the water cooler discussion I was looking for. Hosts Laura and Chirag look beyond the Joss Whedon scandal and examine the exceptional work of the other writers, producers, actors and new showrunner. They examine the politics and sociological aspects of the show. They show you how profound the show is and why everyone should watch it. I plan to listen to the host's first two podcast seasons before the show returns. So thank you very much. Next, we have Curmudgeonland, who gave five stars. Uh, The Nevers podcast is a banger. Thank you for your great insights and analysis. Your reviews really help pull things together for a series that is too much going on to pick up everything on the screen in one watch. And it is way better than the official podcast. Couldn't get through more than 15 minutes of that tripe. I've never actually listened to those official folks, uh, so I can't quality confirm that, but thank you very much for the review. Yes, thank you. Um, So before we get into this week's episode, we'd just like to say thank you to each of you for listening. We've had an influx of new listeners over recent weeks, and it's been really great to see. Thank you to everyone who's been leaving us feedback on Apple Podcasts, Twitter and via email and to those of you who have shared our podcast around. Because of your support, we continue to chart on Apple Podcasts and see impressive download numbers for each episode. So thank you. Uh, yeah, so let's open the Nevers mailbox again and uh, see what awaits. Okay, so our first email is from Bradley Mines. The subject is, where's Lester in all this? Okay. I had to start out with that, maybe to get your attention and top of the list, or a read. Having said that, I do enjoy your podcast over the official podcast, except for the interviews they get. However, yours is more informative and gets you thinking more. Here are some things I'm wondering and noticed. Number one, when you watch with the captions, it is Dr. Haig that says in episode six, do you think you're the only one to hitch a ride? But could he be touched too in some way? 
When he's with Lavinia Bidlow, at one point, he doesn't shield his eyes and looks directly at the orb while it's glowing. In fact, right before he drills into the zombie, he says, where it touched us. And point number two, did Lavinia Bidlow set up both Amalia and Malady? Malady on the stage says, why am I here? Was that a to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy, or was she really asking, I mean, she seemed out of place, but did dress for it, sort of, and right after Amalia is attacked, she invited to the opera, why? Malady didn't know Amalia until she says, give us back the girl to Malady, and it echoes to Malady, thereby she recognizes Amalia and her voice, then says no. A combination of no, she won't have her over, and no, it's you. Okay, I apologize for my reading of that email. I, I, I Hopefully you followed along. So um, I guess the question is, do you think Dr. Haig is touched? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe we're reading too much into what they're saying. I don't know uh, if they do say, uh, if he does say where it touched us. Yeah, I don't know, because if he is from the... F- he is from the future, he would have come back, I guess, at the exact same time. So if he wasn't touched in the future, I guess he could have been hit by the spores in the past when he first arrives. But I, yeah, I'm not sure. Because otherwise, how would, you know what I mean? Like time-wise, how would he have an ability? Yeah, I mean, time-wise, it could just be that he wasn't in the montage we saw in the beginning, but he did get touched. And it is a valid point that he was able to stare directly at the orb without getting the headaches uh like lavinia so like maybe he just has the power um to be unaffected by the radiance of that incredible orb maybe he's just unaffected you know like by beautiful incredible things in general yeah i did i did find it funny because he's like don't look at it cover your eyes and then he immediately turns around and looks at it (laughs) <laughs> it is weird but um yeah i mean i guess it's a possibility i mean it, it vibes with him because he's able to cut into people's brains like a, in such a numb way maybe he is just unaffected maybe that's a superpower like he goes to machu picchu and he'll just be unimpressed you know like maybe <laughs> that's how he can do it i don't know it's it's an interesting point and then as far as the malady question I think that's just Malady struggling with trying to remember her higher purpose, to be like the empath who leads the touched. That's my theory with the whole why am I here, the the question of she wants to be more than who she is, something more, I think. Yeah, I think it's the big possibility that she is the empath and that, you know, unfortunately her brain's just kind of like too messed up in a way to do what I guess she's like supposed to do. And she ends up a little bit messed up out of it, which is unfortunate. But I guess we'll see. I'm interested to see her journey and whether there's any kind of redemption happening and teaming up maybe in the future. I don't think she's done anything particularly irredeemable. I mean, she's killed a bunch of psychiatrists and (laughs) who doesn't want to? That was almost... (laughs) Yeah, that's almost like revenge as opposed to just going out and killing people. Yeah, yeah, she has yeah. she has va- she I think she has values and virtues. She well, I don't know why she, she tends to kill the people who have hurt her in some way or who she thinks are like a blight on society for some reason. I don't know why she would kill Effie Boyle. But yeah, I I don't think she's done anything that can't be redeemed just yet. Um our next letter is from Amanda. 
I just listened to your recap discussion and I completely buy the theory that Sarah slash Malady um, was meant to be the empath that leads uh, the touched. Besides the facts about her powers and how Sarah was the one to comfort Amalia in the asylum, there's the fact that disguised as Effie, she was the one to jump in and save Harriet who was being trampled. So you could see terror in her eyes as Harriet was being stepped on and a look of concern that stayed with her as she passed her off to Desiree as she went to escape. I think those snippets of Sarah's true nature uh, keep coming out through Malady. Also, the whole revealing names and names-saving power reminds me of uh, Jasmine in the fourth season of Angel. Angel is my favourite show, and while the fourth season is my least favourite, the idea that in other worlds, giving away your name made you vulnerable was quite interesting. And the fact that knowing Jasmine's real name would reveal her real maggoty evil self uh, was a good idea that I wish had been carried out more fully. So thank you, Amanda. Um, yeah, so again, if, if Malady was meant to be the empath I think it I think it does make sense and I guess this is one of her redeeming features yeah so she jumps in and it's kind of like she jumps in with no hesitation you'd think you know it's not like as clear as I'm on your side you're on this side and we're enemies she sees someone in trouble and she just jumps in and helps yeah she clearly is a very empathetic individual I mean, there's plenty of evidence we've seen from her that she cares about people. That scene, like you mentioned it um, in the asylum where she comforts Amalia, that was the clincher for me. Like that was such a such an empathetic, compassionate um, scene. Uh, to that really proved it, proved the theory in my own head. And then, like you were saying with the whole Jasmine thing, I think it was really cool. It's it is kind of like with the power of names, it is that Rumpelstiltskin idea of knowing someone's true name gives you power over them. Uh, like, and Rumpelstiltskin is the devil or a demon from, like, from Paradise Lost, we know a demon's nomenclature becomes important because demons don't retain their names that they had in heaven. So knowing the true name of a demon would indicate power over them. And because, like, I, I love reading mythology and that kind of stuff i i looked up the the egyptian legend of ra and isis and in that story isis wanted to become as powerful as the sun god ra so one day as he was walking through his garden she poisoned him with a snake and uh, then offered to heal him if he gave her his true name which was the key to ra's power and authority so ultimately, he did give up his name, and it allowed Isis and her son uh, Horus and Osiris. They kind of like became the dominant gods of Egypt, and Ra just kind of faded away. And like the examples are, are everywhere. You like even with Harry Potter, you know, like he who shall not be named, Voldemort, um, and the only character that says his name is Harry Potter because Harry is the only one who has power over him in that kind of way. So it's interesting to see this idea kind of everywhere. And um, it's really like one of the most, uh, the, the thing that I'm, I've been impressed with the most in this show is how meaningful all the details are. Because in so much of media and entertainment today, there's not as much meaning. It's, it's like there is kind of like on the nose things that you can see, like with blatant, um 
New Testament imagery and stuff you you can see in a lot of movies and uh, but just like when you get into the camera angles and the lights and the lines and the words and the names there's not as much meaning in these little these little grains of sand as there is in just like on a beach i don't know that's a stupid metaphor but it, i i i'm i i really like that it's so dense with meaning so i appreciate that yeah i mean i think for me as well names we've talked about this show a lot with like trust and betrayal and like as big themes and for me like you know at the end she tells penance her name and that for me is like this this just like huge sign of trust you know to be able to trust someone with your name you know that's making you vulnerable so you must really care for those people and then like in the future world that's another reason I guess I feel like once you've told someone your name it's like easier to be betrayed you've like given them everything kind of thing and everything's on the table so I think trust is a big is a big thing yeah it is a very intimate thing now that I think of it and I wonder just like in our own modern lives do we have anything that's so sacred to us that we give to other people that is meaningful and intimate. I, I don't know if we have that same, I, I don't know if we have that. I'm not sure. It, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Mm. All right. So the next email is from Lewis Srigley. I apologize if I mispronounced your last name. So Lewis has questions about names in the postseason recap part one. They say salutations. During the recap, several names and how they may have been derived and their importance. While I agree that some could be possible as it's a scripted show, I believe that many of these are far stretches. I would like to talk about Hugo Swan. You may note I am spelling it with two N's. I watch this show with captions and it always has two of them. However, your site and IMDb both use one N. I see it written both ways in articles. I have seen it both ways in the same paragraph. This might be a better representation that Hugo is more fluid with relationships. I kind of trust the captions because they are often direct from scripts. For an example, there's a scene between Hugo and Frank in episode 4 where a butler asks Master Swan any assistance required. The caption has two ends, so which is correct? Uh, in the case of Molly, you indicate it's similar to Mary, and she has her dream of having children dashed, and she loses hope. Uh, Molly's despair may actually be that she did not fight to get the man that was higher than her class. She chose the simpler and same class by choosing the butcher. That led to the dead end. This is also the possible fate of Augie Bidlow if he stays within his class. You then focus on the name Zephyr as a gentle wind and coming from the West, but you may have it wrong as Canadian-American. She says twice that she is from the south coast of Canada. She does specify three names, Zephyr, Alexis, Naveen. I think it's important to do all three names. You talked about Zephyr, gentle wind of the West, a small change from a breeze. And then Alexis is a helper defender and is also the protector of mankind. And Naveen is a bit harder, but Naveen, same pronunciation, means new modern, fresh in Arabic, Urdu, and Hindi. So a small change, a protector of mankind, and a new role model to the world. 
thank you, Louis Wrigley. Uh, that's a lot to digest. Okay. <laughs> so I'll address you point by point. Well, maybe I'll just address you just... Uh, I'll wing it. We'll, we'll see. So I wanted to just talk about what you what you referred to in the very beginning. So for me, the beautiful thing about art is that its meaning is derived entirely out of interpretation. So without someone to experience it and interpret meaning from it, the whole thing might as well be shapeless sounds and flashing lights. So like watching a TV show in that sense is kind of this it's it's this con conspiratorial thing between the creator and the audience where it's like yes we're all in on this thing we're all in this club where we agree to watch this thing in this visual format with this language we all understand like what cuts and transitions mean we all know to suspend our disbelief with visual effects and uh cgi dragons and and the people who like the people who don't participate in our conspiracy, they don't get to enjoy TV watching. And I was just thinking about this, and I realized for myself that as an audience member of not just television, but also as an audience member of my own life, I can never really know the true nature of anything I'm experiencing. I can only know reality through the filter of my brain. Like when I meet someone, I can never know them really except through my own perception of them. And in this show, that like this podcast is about the never, I'm on a bit of a tangent, but like I'm seeing this show with my eyes, I'm hearing it with my ears, I'm processing it with my brain. And I was thinking, in a way, that kind of bridges the gap between creator and audience. Because I'm not just the audience, I'm the creator of the world around me in my own mind. Like, I determine truth and meaning, and when I say I, I mean like, I mean we, because we really are the final stage of a TV show's production. Like, we take this thing that some power beyond us named God or J.J. Abrams or whatever has created, and we sit down on a couch and project it within ourselves and we add to it and subtract from it and we color in all the negative spaces with each of our own individual artistic sensibilities. So like when I go on a rant about what all the characters, the nevers and names mean, I'm not telling you the actual truth because I can never know that. I'm just telling you the TV show in my brain, basically, if that makes any sense. And like I can give you reasons, I can... I can give you evidence, but I can never, I can't tell you the truth because you're your own internal showrunner in your own, you know, from your own perspective. Um, so just addressing that point like that, you kind of set me down a rabbit hole of some interesting thoughts. And then you bring up a good point with Hugo Swan. I think we have a producer note that apparently the spelling of Swan on the website was a typo and has since been corrected, but I do think you're right. He is very fluid with his sexuality, and, you know, like, swans are known to be fluid creatures, kind of gliding on water, which is a fluid, so that makes sense. As far as Molly, you mentioned, uh, the fact that, for me at least, the, the fact that the biblical name Molly literally means wishing for a child, and the depiction of the character is that she keeps trying to have a child. That feels too on the nose for me to be coincidental, in my opinion. Um, and if I remember correctly, 
she ends up agreeing to the butcher's marriage proposal because the other guy just didn't have any money or insurance for her and she just got fired because of nepotism, right? So it's almost like it wasn't even a choice for her. She was like, get get married to the butcher dude or go penniless and homeless was was the choice. And that's not really free agency. And then you mentioned the Zephyr thing. As far as the West Wind, and it was just a little tag-on thing that I added in there. I think I just meant that because the show was set in London, it's interesting that Zephyr, and like you mentioned, Laura, um, Zephyros, the Greek god of the West Wind, and Zephyr's from Canada, which is west of London, and her name means wind, so a wind from the west, but yeah, I mean, whatever. I, I If you're not on board with the Zephyr name theory, I get it. I do want to say, though, before I yield the floor because I'm talking way too long, I do want to say if you're not on board with the Zephyr name theory, it's fine, but the uh, butterfly effects theory... I think there's way too much evidence for it to not be compelling. Uh, And I just want to take this opportunity to throw out the evidence one more time. Number one, this is a time travel story. So the butterfly effect theme fits like a perfect comfy glove. Number two, in the episode six future scenes, like Laura pointed out, there were a bunch of those actual butterfly renditions in the little Victorian cabinet. Were they drawings or were they like actual fossilized butterflies, you remember? I think the actual, yeah, like when they they pin the butterflies to the board and preserve them, the actual butterflies. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that was there. And then number three, the fact that the Galanthi was called a dragonfly by Sarah, which is very similar to a butterfly. And then number four, the one that kind of like clinches it for me, the fact that the glowing orb was called chrysalis. And Dr. Haig said that whatever is inside is transforming. And we know that's exactly what happens with butterflies. They start off as caterpillars. They cocoon themselves in a chrysalis. And they emerge as beautiful butterflies. So I think the Galanthi we saw in the scientist recording was perhaps in the caterpillar stage. And when it emerges from its chrysalis or that orb, it'll be a full-fledged butterfly. That's my theory. Yeah, I like that actually. Yeah, I'd not thought about that, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I like uh, your first point about how, like, you know, a show is show is how you interpret it, and everybody's going to watch a show, and you either, you know, in simple terms, you either like it or you don't like it. But like, there's more to that. Some people will watch a show, and whether they've enjoyed it or not, they've watched it, and that's it. They'll move on. Other people will watch a show, and then come listen to a podcast because they want to delve into it more. You know, other people will go on the internet and research all their names and do whatever. Like, it's up to you as a viewer like to kind of make as much or as little of, of something or whatever piece of art, you're, whether you're watching a TV show or whatever, what you can make of it. And um, that's just another really interesting thing about about art and how you interpret it. So, Absolutely. The choice is yours. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite a... I really like re-watching things, so... And I rewatch things because I feel like every time you watch something, you you notice something that you didn't notice the first time, and that adds to the experience. Like if something for me, if something isn't for me, good TV shows. Every time you watch it, it should be better. If it if it stays the same or gets worse, then I will stop watching it. I will never watch it again because it should always get better. That that's my opinion anyway on TV shows. Right. No, I get that. I I for me, I feel like I don't know if better but 
I, I need like change. I need it to be different and change and evolve in some kind of way, which is why I have like a tough time watching the X-Files or um, like a sitcom or something because things don't really change. Like every episode, the characters are the exact same and everything is the same and I need it yeah. to be different a little bit and maybe not better or worse. I, I, I mean, I, I guess that's all relative, better or worse, but there should at least be some kind of progression, I guess. Okay, so uh, our next email is from uh, Laura Ballard. Says, I've got to know if Knitter and Harriet were the same person. Did you notice anyone else in the future with Stripe that are now with Amalia in Victorian London? All the Victorian stuff in the future. Med lab cabinets mean something, but what? Don't think they're the same person. I did think afterwards... Because, like, at the point that Stripe was taken, or Zephyr, basically already dead, or maybe just about to die. I'm not sure. Can't be sure, I guess. They took the took the soul. Um, you know, Nitra had also been killed. Could her soul have been taken as well? Could be out there somewhere, and we could see them in the future? I, I don't know. But um, it's all possibilities. But, yeah, I don't think it's the same actress yeah and she like harriet has a boyfriend right so i think he would have noticed if at some point his girlfriend is acting like she knows things that she wouldn't know or is from the future yeah yeah i don't think they're yeah because it'd be weird like like say nitter was nitter yeah yeah i think it only works with Stripe and Amalia, because obviously... They're both South Asian actresses. They're both kind of like of that South Asian descent. And I think the main ammunition for that theory is the fact that when Knitter is dying and she's saying her real name, she starts kind of with an H consonant, and maybe people were taking that to mean they're the same person. But other than that, I don't really see any similarities. Yeah, no, because... If anything, Knitter is the is the penance character. Absolutely. Like in terms of what she provides, you know, the innocence and the hope and everything. Yeah, and I haven't really seen anything from anyone other than Dr. Haig. That would suggest another hitchhiker. Um, if there's anyone else from the future, I think it could maybe be Lord Masson's daughter. Maybe that's why she's locked up. She's behaving like someone else or something. Uh, maybe Lavinia could be an option, but I don't think we know the secondary characters well enough yet to know if they're out of character. There's been no hints, so all of that would be conjecture, really. But um, yeah, in terms of all the Victorian stuff, I don't know. I was I was not sure whether it's a possibility of is that just Victorian stuff from like is it from their past of where that future is. Or is it from the past that we're currently in? And does that past that we're currently in lead to that same point? And all of it is going to be for nothing? Or does it lead to a different point? Because time travel is confusing. <laughs> so yeah, thank you, Laura. Next letter is from Vanessa. Hello, Vanessa from Sydney, Australia here. This widespread, this. All over the world now. 
It's a global phenomenon, um, this podcast. Global phenomenon. <laughs> um, first, allow me to start by saying that I absolutely love your podcast. It's both informative and entertaining, and I really enjoy the intellectual scholarly approach that Chirag brings to the discussion and the intelligent fans' perspective that Laura brings. The two of you complement uh, each other so very well. I also enjoyed Tyler's contribution when he sat in as a guest recently. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Thank you. Um, and Vanessa has two questions. So, uh, do you think Amalia and Penance have it in them to go against the to go against the other for the greater good? We saw Penance draw a line in the sand when she decided to try to rescue Malady. If it came down to it, and one had to, I guess, maybe kill each other, do you think they have it in them to do it? Um, and the second question is, would you consider reviewing other shows in the Whedonverse? I'm a big fan of Whedon's and I love the way you examine a review. The Nevers, um, I'd quite like to hear you do the same with my uh, other favourite Whedonverse shows. I look forward to what you have planned for us. You quickly become one of my uh, favourite podcasts to listen to. I always get excited when I receive a notification telling me that a new episode of the Nevers podcast is available. All the best, Vanessa. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Let's go through. So, first question. I feel like they've had the moment of splitting into their own directions. They've both come back and kind of real. Uh, I feel like it was almost like a truce when they were like, you know, how did it go? And then, like, you know, they sit down together. You just... I feel like that was the moment where they... And Zephyr tells her a name that they're going to tell her everything. I think to myself, that's the truce moment where they are now... That's it. They're, like, together forever now. They're never going to, like... If they have alternate... If they have opposite opinions, they'll explore both of them together. They'll find a way to do, like... You know, what they both believe in as opposed to kind of going against each other because they, they saw that maybe, you know, things maybe could have gone better if they could have gone on both those missions with everyone. Yeah, I don't think that there'll be another, me personally anyway, I don't think there'll be another moment where they kind of butt heads and definitely not kill each other because I don't think that either of them could kill either of the other one. I don't think that Amalia would be able to kill Penance without killing herself in the process. Because like, as we saw with Knitter, so like when, when Knitter died, with her died Zephyr's hope. And so Zephyr just kind of killed herself. So I feel like Penance is the knitter equivalent, where Penance is Amalia's hope and her heart. And if she dies or goes evil or grows tentacles, Amalia wouldn't be able to deal. And like we see in episode two, when Amalia is given the Sophie's choice of losing either Penance or Mary, both of whom represent hope for a better future, Amalia instead chooses to shoot herself. And then I feel like Penance, on the other hand, is so pure-hearted and still innocent, it would be out of character for her to kill. She kind of reminds me of Aang in Avatar The Last Airbender. Spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, but like towards the end, everyone is telling him he's got to kill the Fire Lord, and he easily could in the end, but he refuses to do it. And it's just the same thing with Luke Skywalker. Like, Luke wins not by killing the Emperor, but by throwing down his lightsaber. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't see that happening. And if it does, they would need some darn good explaining to do. 
<laughs> Something serious would have to go down. <laughs> um, so, second question. Consider reviewing other shows in the Whedonverse. I mean, I love all of the Whedon shows. I'm currently in, uh, on, I'm like in the midway of season seven of Buffy. And I haven't rewatched it since... Haven't watched it fully, like, literally since it originally aired. As a teenager, I'd kind of, like, dipped in and out of it, but never watched it, like, from start to finish completely. So as an adult, I'm really thoroughly enjoying it, and I was worried that it might not be as good as I remembered it, but I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying Buffy again. And, uh, yeah, before that, I watched Dollhouse again. I've seen Firefly, like, a thousand times. Doctor Horrible Sinon on blog, I watch regularly and listen to a lot. I was listening to it in the car the other day, like, you know. So um, I'd definitely be open for talking about anything from the Whedonverse. And, you know, we might just we might just have something for you in the near future. Who knows? <laughs> Next, we have a voice recording from Steve Brown. Hello, The Nervous Podcast. Uh, this is Steve. I'm... Uh... I live in Oklahoma and in the U.S. in the U.S. and uh, I absolutely loved your coverage of uh, the Nevers uh, this first half of the first season. Um, I can't wait to hear the second half. I'm so glad for your podcast. It helped me out so much, and I appreciate what you guys did. I appreciate that you are uh, you're representing uh, the the Weedonverse, even with all the, the controversy and and everything else going on. That the the actors and the cre- the other uh, creators, the other artists, should not suffer for. Uh, the controversy and so I'm so glad and I can't wait uh, for the second half of the season I can't wait to see how this plays out and I can't wait to hear you guys talk about it some more so again uh, just thank you so much for your podcast that helped me out uh, tremendously thank you for listening Steve Brown thank you next we have a tweet from at mofavo33 they ask do you think there will be a way to remove someone's turn Maybe Dr. Cousins can, or another touched person. Will people choose to be cured or not? So I think if this show survives past season one, they almost certainly are going to explore the whole cure thing. Some people like Lucy will definitely choose the cure because their gift is a curse. You know, they, they, they want the status quo back and some people will not choose it. The cure could be weaponized against the people not choosing it, and that'll be a nice season-long arc. There's going to be people that have got turns that are not great for them, and they might choose to get rid of it. And the weaponizing thing... Yeah, I'm wondering... I feel like if there is a cure found, it's going to be more of a doctor having to drill into your head and take out wherever you were touched thing, as opposed to, like an antidote that's like easily weaponized because i think that would be i don't know would it be too similar to like a lot of other things that already use that do you know what i mean now that you put it that way and i i feel like maybe and i mean like in the times we're living in it could be a metaphor in a weird twisted way of like the vaccines i don't know i'm not anti-vax or anything but i get vaccinated everybody but I maybe like the antidote thing where, you know, like a public campaign to get people cured. And if you're not cured, it's a taboo or something. I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb mm. idea. Just throwing it out there. Um, funny enough, having mentioned um, X-Men, our next letter is from 
Xavier. Great podcast. I've been enjoying your episodes immensely. Kudos to everyone involved in making your show. First question. Do you think the new showrunner will stay true to Joss's grander vision for the Nevers, which he had planned for the show? Second question. We know there'll be six more episodes, episodes 7 to uh, 12, for the first season. Joss wrote scripts for the first 10 episodes. Do you think they're going to film the rest of his scripts and have the new showrunner write scripts for episode 11 and 12? Or will they throw out the undoubtedly brilliant scripts that Joss wrote and write new ones? As a huge Joss Whedon fan, I'm hoping they'll use what he's already written for his show. Uh, Thanks for answering my questions. So uh, thank you, Xavier, from... um, I'm going to try and say this. Oh, Prince Albert... Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. There we go. The the first question, so um, will the showrunner, new showrunner, stay true to Joss's vision? I th- well, I'm hoping that this that everybody pretty much on board on this show kind of knew, like writers and production wise, knew where this story is going for the season, and like the overall arc of what's going on. Because I mentioned it before, I don't know if it was in our recap episode, but I definitely mentioned that I feel more secure and I feel happier watching a show if I think that the writers know what's going to happen. I don't like being pulled along by shows like Lost, where I genuinely feel like the writers, you know, through the middle five seasons, had no idea where they were going to end it and then just had to kind of pluck a story out of air to finish the show at some point. Well, you could say they were lost. They're true to their title. <laughs> lost. Yeah, I prefer to have, you know, when you start a show, you know where it's going to finish and you might not be sure how long that journey is going to take you, but you, you know where the end point is and what, what all the stuff going on in the background and what's actually happening. Because otherwise I feel like a bit cheated by the writers. Like, if you don't know what's going on, why should I watch your show kind of thing? Well, there's also the the fallback to that with something like How I Met Your Mother, where they're so dead set on this conclusion and this is where it's going to end that they didn't learn how to like figure it out along the way and adapt and change and, you know, maybe don't stick to that thing. Let your show breathe and grow into a different thing that you, than you initially imagined. There, there, is a, there is a value to figuring things out as you go so that it grows in the most organic way imaginable. But I I also get what you're saying. I haven't seen Lost. I just kind of like, I watched the first season and was so intrigued, like when it originally aired in 2000 and whatever on Sky. And I really liked it. And then by the second season, when you really still don't know anything, I just feel like, I don't know. Because as a viewer, I want to know at least something of what's going on. I can't be held out for like eight seasons or whatever it went without knowing it. Yeah, it just, I just can't watch it. Anyway, uh, the second question, I mean, Joss doesn't write all of the episodes, first of all. There's, like, several writers, like Jane S. S. Benson, isn't it, for one. And I know he might have written the overarching story, but, like, the writers themselves, like, there's amazing writers. And um, so I don't think the quality of the writing and the dialogue and the scripts is going to go down at all. And like I said, I think they've already got the story of where things are going for the rest of the season. So I... Personally, I don't think that there's going to be a drop-off in quality at all. Correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't they jumping into the second half of the season right now? They're starting filming in like a week or so, I think. Yeah, so I don't think they're even going to have the time or the money to just throw away 
all of Joss's scripts and rewrite them. I mean, I think they're definitely using his scripts and ideas. And the new showrunner, Philippa Goslett, is just going to kind of guide and shape it and inject her own flavors into the mix. But I will say that as far as whatever the multi-season arc was for these characters and stories, I think it could be in flux because whatever Joss would have planned is likely not going to happen. So if Goslett knocks it out of the park the second half of the season, maybe this show gets a season two. Otherwise, with the price tag and the viewership numbers, I don't want to say Firefly, but it could be another Firefly situation, one and done. But here's hoping. Yeah, or even like like with Dollhouse, they had the one season. And I feel like when they went into the second season, they knew it was going to be the last. So they it rounded off and it finished. Right. Because, you know, like, have you watched True Calling with Eliza Dushku? No, I haven't. It's a different... Yeah. That's a show where it's cancelled after the first season, but it ends on such a massive cliffhanger that you're just... Like, still, I think about it to this day. I'm just like, is it... It's, it's so horrible. It gets to this point where it's so good and then it just ends and you know that there's no more and it's it just kills you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I mean, you know, his name's still attached. They didn't uh, fire him or whatever. He, he walked away from the show. So, you know, the show's still going to have his name on it, right? Created by Joss Whedon. And if, they, if they've got episodes that are written by him, they're not going to be like weird about putting written by Joss Whedon as well. So, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think they'd get rid of any of the scripts. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you, Xavier. Moving on, we have uh, another letter from uh, Daniel Morick. Morick? Morick. I think it's Morick. Daniel Morick. I'm sorry if I'm saying this wrong. Something's been eating at me that I'm not sure you've asked or addressed. The Galanthi can embed the consciousness of a person into the living and the dead, Right. Then is penance, for example, the penance from before the event, or did that penance's consciousness expire or get erased to make room for the consciousness of the one that the Galanthi placed in her body? Or are there two people inhabiting her? Molly was dead, so it makes sense that her body could house a new person, but our other characters weren't dead. They were all alive when the spores landed on them. How can others from the future have hitched a ride and be placed into the body of the living? Daniel Morick. Thank you for your letter. Um, I, I, um, so the only people that we know for a fact came from the future and like their souls got taken was Zephyrs came out of her dead or dying body into Molly's dead body or dying body, and it was like a straight exchange. The only other person we know for sure has come is the person that hitched a ride, who we are still unsure of who it is, but I don't know whether it will be the same deal of, like, if it is Dr. Haig, was he having to be near near death at the same time and happened to go into that body? Because, yeah, if he's gone into someone who was already inhabited, I don't know if that is a possibility. But in terms of everyone else, it's not like... um. The spores aren't souls. Like, the rest of the spores aren't souls. Yeah, the spores are not consciousnesses, from my understanding. Like, the consciousness transference was a separate thing that happened at the same time, and it only happened to Amalia, and perhaps one or two more people we don't know yet. But everyone else, penance included, is exactly who they were 
before, only now with superpowers. So next we have from Janian Baker. Uh, they say, I hope the show will dive into the backstory of all the characters. A lot of them have been sidelined and underutilized, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, I think that you are correct. I think, yeah, for sure, like, the focus has been heavily on Amalia and Penance, and those two are the best established characters, but, like, I, I get it, because Amalia and Penance are kind of the foundation, and once you get the audience to care about these two, then you can expand the narrative focus and start doing Primrose-centric episodes and what happened to Harriet on the way to the store episodes and all sorts of individual stories. But they did a good job in the first half of the season, at least, of really solidifying our uh, connection with Amalia and Penance and their relationship. Yeah, for me, I because the only person who's like full, true backstory we've seen is the current Amalia or Zephyr in Amalia. We don't have Zephyr's complete backstory. You know, we don't have anyone else's at all, like complete backstory. But I feel like the majority of the characters in the show have such a good grounding and are introduced in a way that you're just like, I kind of love them all straight away. I don't necessarily need to see like exactly where they've all come from. Um, I mean, I watch a lot of anime, which is like 90% backstory and flashbacks. <laughs> and it's always great to see like someone who's had, you know, a character that's come from this really, I don't know, interesting backstory. But um, I don't think it's necessarily necessary uh, to like bond with a character because I really, really love all these characters. And would it take away, you know, if we started getting flashbacks of, like, all of them and what's going on and everything? I would like to see maybe some, like, what you just said about, like, an episode with, like, a little side story with Primrose and Myrtle or something. And, you know what I mean? I feel like we're at that stage where everyone's going to get involved and split off and be doing their own little mini missions and and tasks. I do like that, like... um... The whole the whole blood sport thing of uh, Jean Claude Van Damme just kind of like uh, he he just he's he, he has a flashback and then the entire second half of second act of the movie is that flashback and presumably he's just standing there remembering his past for half an hour and it's just like the the unreality of that is hilarious um, it 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 is more grounded to just you know, jump into the action with all these different characters who have all these diverse powers and personalities and all this kind of stuff. And we find out more about them through their interactions with each other as opposed to, like, time traveling to when they were seven. Um, But I think now that we have Amalia and Penance squarely, and, and maybe we can even go more into Penance, but we have their relationship as a foundation that we can then stand on and really reach some interesting places with all these other characters. Thank you, Janine Baker. Okay, next one. More thoughts from Bradley Mines. So, Malady, while on stage, says, he sings, it's a hum, I feel it, hear it. Um, she can't, but then Mary does, and she's hurt. Do you think she realised that she wasn't the messenger and feels betrayed? 
Or do you think that the Galanthi is trying to call out to Malady? Um, and then another point, was Sarah's turn grown from her reading the Bible? What was that book she carried with her at the asylum? Uh, she was reading something at the asylum. Could she have been smart all along, devising this plan for two years while being tortured? You see in still frames the dresses she's wearing, scratch-offs, uh, counting something. Uh, days she's been held, or is it days she, uh, until she leaves? How did she know to kill Effie Boyle? Or was she the only female reporter? Uh, we definitely need at least two episodes on her backstory leading up to Malady. Um, so this is kind of linked to the last point, you know, do, do we need to see way more backstory on some of these characters, especially Sarah? I feel like Sarah is kind of the one we most want to know, or, or Malady, what happened to her in the in the two years, like in the asylum or being experimented on by Dr. Haig and whatever other doctors, because... We kind of want to see why she ended up, how she ended up. And I know that we, but again, you know, we kind of have, we have the notes on it. And is it more important to kind of focus on what's happening now as opposed to going back? Yeah, because we don't, we don't really go back with River either. We see her being rescued. I'm, I'm talking about Firefly for those who don't know. Um, she's a similar character who was experimented on. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll have a torture episode. Just one one long torture episode where we see what happened to her. I think maybe we'll get a if she encounters Doctor Haig again in the future, it'll be more like a really flashback flashback of like her time with him, as opposed to like an episode or whatever focused on on just that, because it'll be like you know her past trauma coming up because she's with Doctor Haig again or something. Um, I don't know about the book, whether it's the Bible, but obviously she she speaks a lot of like Bible verse and 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 things. Um, and yeah, I don't, I guess she was count. I I would assume that she's counting the days that she that she's been there, and she how holds that in her head. She's literally like, you know, I think she knows exactly how long, like probably down to the minute that she was being tortured because it's a pretty uh, brutal thing. Yeah, and then as far as your first question, I do think the Galanthi was trying to reach out to Malady, but I think Malady got pissed off because she thinks she's supposed to be the messenger of God, but she can't sing the message. And then this Mary chick just comes out from backstage left and is able to sing that message with such beauty and grace and I think Malik felt that her own performance got upstaged by Mary, and those feelings of jealousy made her deaf to the Galanthi's message in Mary's song, which I do think was directed to her. Yeah, I like that because, like say, she tries to to sing or get, get it out, but she can't. And yeah, you can see that she's instantly like feels like she's been betrayed or something because she just goes straight over and, and hits her. <laughs> So we have more thoughts from Bradley Mines. Uh, he says, and finally, going to my subject, where is Lester? After Malady recognized Amalia for who she was, Horatio a little, didn't she seem to think about Lester? Without him committing Sarah, she doesn't go outside, doesn't get touched, and doesn't meet Amalia. 
Maybe never setting all of this off. The two would never have the conversation on what Sarah saw and Dr. Haig finding out. There would still be the touched, but Malady wouldn't have been there to kidnap Mary and the touched hearing Mary's first song. So does Lester have a role? Did he basically throw her to the wolves? So I, um, first of all, I don't think you necessarily had to be physically outdoors to be touched, right? Because I think Sarah could have been touched even if her husband hadn't committed her to the asylum. Um, but I don't think she would have turned into malady if she hadn't been committed to the asylum. So maybe she did need to break out of that domestic role before she could be of any use to a larger cause. Maybe she needed to be committed to kind of, you know, gain that freedom and in, in, in insanity, the freedom in anarchy and chaos. But yeah, I do think that she probably harbors some resentment at Lester. And for those who don't might not remember, Lester is her husband that we see in the montage who's kind of sending her into the carriage to the asylum. I mean, we might want to we might want to assume that she's already gone and killed him. <laughs> oh, you think so? I don't know. Possibly. You think that would be one of your first port of calls? I don't know. Or she would have gone to see him still thinking that he's like there for her and he's like yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, she killed all those psychiatrists, so... But, I mean, at the point that she's in the asylum, she doesn't seem to blame him at all, like the husband. She's looking forward to getting back to him. Like, there's no there's no blame there. And, yeah, and she's pretty... Well, she's in an insane asylum. She's pretty, Compared to how she ends up after being experimented on by Dr. Haig, she's pretty, like, kind of fine <laughs> compared to that. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily what I'm trying to get at is that... Uh, being touched by one of the spores isn't necessarily what sent her over the edge because she has all that and in her head while she's in there and she seems still kind of fine. It was the further experimentation that really sent her over the edge. And now that I think of it, it might be it might be the point because I remember um, towards the end of her stay in the asylum before she met Dr. Haig, she kind of was resigned to the fact that maybe she didn't see God. Maybe it was just a balloon or something. And she was willing to kind of let it go and return to her husband and return to domesticity and the status quo and the, and the feminine role and into society as she was cured of her insanity or whatever. It's almost like that would have been a disservice because the society that we're in needs her chaos. It needs her to shake it up. Uh, it needs her to introduce that element of, you know, these things cannot sustain themselves as they are right now. And so Dr. Haig introducing himself into her life and Amalia's betrayal of her was part of this thing that maybe we call destiny maybe we call fate whatever it is but it was something that was required in order for her to become the messenger that she needs to be the leader that she needs to be i don't know it's interesting to think about so we have another email from your best friend my fellow laura uh, laura ballard says Love the theory on Myrtle. 
What if Malady is a leader of the free life in the future or somehow started the war? That would explain how the Victorian stuff got to the future. Also, possible all of this is a dream. Stripe has after killing, uh, sorry, after trying to kill herself, which I don't believe she would do, uh, to resolve in her head how it could have been done right. Something has to be going on with Lavinia. Um, never ever see her anywhere but in the wheelchair. Is she hiding something under all those fancy dresses? I'm dying to know why their names are so secret too. So thank you, Laura. Yeah, what if Melody is the leader of the free life? Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm. Because I think we're we're kind of on the on the wavelength that Melody got the message and was meant to be the empath or the voice for the people. Yeah, I think she's crazy, but like as I said before, she has values and virtues, and she rescues Harriet. I think she has an affinity for the touched that she hasn't explored yet because she's been too busy thinking about vengeance and revenge and making this society she's in bleed for their wrongdoings against her. Yeah, and I think if the the Victorian stuff in the future is anyone's, it will be penances because it's a lab and if someone's there working on whatever science and it's like someone from Victorian times, I feel like it'll be, it'll be penance. Yeah. And you know, it, it could also be because I, it could be maybe that the scientists were planning to go to the Victorian era. And so in their planning, they were collecting Victorian artifacts and, you know, understanding because those were butterflies that we saw. They were, maybe exploring what I was talking about with the butterfly effect and going back in time and making a small change that changes the future that they're in and saves humanity or something like that. Um, I want to hope with all my being that this isn't a dream. Oh, I'm God, already no. worried already worried that it's like one of these sim things, like a simulation, which is, you know, similar to it being a dream. Kind of don't want that to happen either. Because it's one of those things of like, oh, none of this ever happened. Like, I don't know. What, growing up doing like uh, exams at school, you know, like writing stories in English for your exam. And they would always be like, never, ever get to the end of your story and end with like, and it was all a dream. They're like, <laughs> number one rule, don't do that. But um, I actually sat down in my, in my, when I was 16 in my end of like school exam and the English question was write a story about your dream world and I'm like are you kidding like (laughs) are you kidding we've been told all this time not to write about dreams (laughs) well I mean you can do some interesting stuff with dreams like I think Neil Gaiman figured this out with Sandman like 30 years ago but you can use dreams as like a like an interesting channel into a character subconscious and what's going on underneath their hood but yeah I, I i think you're right the whole thing that oh the whole thing was a dream all along it just erases all of the investment that you put in the story and it's a bit of a betrayal yeah i the the dream the dream shit is a fat no for me so lavinia was she keeping under her dresses huh uh, hopefully a, a pair of uh, legs and a body. I don't know. <laughs> it's not going to be like... Um, a concealed weapon? All along she can walk this entire time. She's just fooling everybody. 
<laughs> no, you can tell that she really, really uh, misses the ability to walk. In in the whole um, scene with with Augie in the in the restaurant, reminiscing about ice skating and such. And that yeah. goes back to the trust issue that you were talking about with Amalia giving her true name to Penance as an indication of I can trust her and um, Lavinia doesn't really trust anybody. You can see that in the conversation she has because she is so untrustworthy herself, she can't fathom the possibility of trusting anybody else. Which is why like, she doesn't even... She doesn't get close to the people at the orphanage, even though she runs the orphanage financially. She doesn't go there or stay with any of them or become friends with any of them. She She's a very emotionally distant, cold, detached person. And that's often, uh, it's, that's often uh, a reaction to something that she's, she's gone through in her life. Some kind of trauma or something. Well, I was going to say that relating back to the other letter about the backstories, I think Lavinia is one of the characters that, while she's quite a presence in the show, you, I don't think she's had a lot of screen time compared to all the other characters. She's had like a very small amount of screen time. Um, so she's this like huge, powerful character that we know is like running the underground and, you know, is the one that got uh, Amalia out of the asylum and Malady into like being experimented on. You don't really see that much of her. So yeah, what does she, what does she do in all that time that we haven't seen her? That um, that's quite interesting to see it. I think it would be. I agree. Um so yeah, thank you Laura for that letter. Our last letter uh that we're going to end with is uh <laughs> a very impassioned letter from our listener Alice Smithy. They write, why everyone needs to get off their high horses about Joss Whedon. So just a fair warning, this is quite a long letter, first of all. We're going to take it kind of like chunk by chunk and discuss it as we go. And it's it's going to be about what we've not really discussed that much. We I think it was the second episode we, we touched on it and kind of put out our views. Um, but it's about, you know, all of the Joss Whedon allegations and everything kind of going on around that area so you know it's going to talk about the you know allegations and everything like Chirag said I think back then we're not here to belittle anyone's you know experiences everything that anyone's said and come out with is obviously valid you know we're going to read this letter um this is not our opinions that we're reading this is just a letter we wanted to read everybody's letters so we're going to read it and discuss anyway. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think it's a good idea to add a trigger warning for those who may have experienced any kind of abuse and are sensitive to that subject because um, this letter ventures fairly deep into the mires of this situation. So here we go, starting with this letter. So one of my favorite things about the shows and movies of Joss Whedon is the fact that his characters were never these pure, idealized beings. They were flawed, like all of us. Sometimes maladjusted and made mistakes, but they were always capable of great good, despite their imperfections. His characters were never cast aside for their flaws, as some neuroatypical. Oh, sorry, as someone neuroatypical. I particularly appreciated the character of River Tam 
who managed to be quite extraordinary and be accepted by those around her in spite of her constant struggles against her own mind. My struggles against the English language. Uh, Joss seemed to preach a rather hopeful message that broken, flawed people and people who made mistakes could still be worthwhile. That's why I'm extremely disappointed in the hypocrisy of so-called fans of these stories of imperfect heroes seeing fit to rake their author over the coals for the crime of not being a ray of sunshine 24-7. The incidents in question, which are ridiculously being construed as abuse, amount to nothing more than a stressed-out creator being unpleasant under pressure during some particularly rough crises on two difficult sets. Should he have handled these situations better? Maybe. But realistically, every one of us has lashed out in frustration at some point. We're human, and so is he. It's really easy for us, who've never had the weight of a massive production on our shoulders, to play armchair quarterback, and Joss is not obligated to coddle people on those productions who refuse to be team players. Okay, so before we continue with the letter... I just want to I, I want to qualify this by saying that other than the people involved, none of us here knows what happened on those sets, right? Unless you were on the set. I, nobody here knows what happened. And we certainly don't know the nuances and the details. So I think in the absence of knowledge, it's important for us to take very seriously the stories and reports of people in vulnerable positions, like of actors, of employees, of people who can lose paychecks and get replaced and have their livelihoods taken away. Like, I think too often these things get dismissed because there's this person in a position of power who either has enough influence or money or fanfare that they can escape from accountability and in the process cause a lot of damage to a lot of people who don't have the same luxuries. So I guess just like a little PSA uh, before we continue, if you want to keep going. Yeah, I mean, for me, I understand the high pressure of like film sets and the money that can be wasted and things like this by like things not going right. But I don't believe that anybody in any position uh, deserves to be spoken to in like any kind of detrimental way do you know what I mean like I would never want to be spoken to in that way so you know there's that there's that I understand how and it happens to there's so many videos of actors and directors and whatever online completely losing it on set and like shouting at people and I don't think that anyone deserves to be treated that way I also get their side in that it's so high pressure that there's probably a point where you just snap and I get the whole everybody's flawed, no one's perfect. You know, everybody probably has these moments in their life. Unfortunately, when you're in a position of power, you know, you need to be extra careful about all, all that stuff. Yeah, like, it really is a, like a corny thing to say, but like with power does come tremendous responsibility. Yeah. And I don't know, especially... Like, I want to, like, think the best of everybody. So I want to believe that all of these allegations are true from the perspective of the of the people that experienced it, okay? You know, you could see a conversation between two people and think there's nothing wrong with it, but that person could think that they've been, you know, like, the way they've been spoken to 
is not acceptable. It's it's going back to like how we watch TV. Everyone's got a different opinion. Everyone experiences things differently. And like that's the important thing is that these people that have experienced that, that's how they experienced it. You know, and we can't say that they didn't. Even if you was there, we can't say that that's not how that person took whatever happened. You know what I mean? Which is why the person in power has to be super careful because... I know, you're literally in a position where, like you said, you can ruin someone's life, you can fire them, and you can destroy their career. And it, and it is, it is, you know... At the same time, yeah, I want to believe that he didn't say anything or do anything terrible. Because, like I said, I want to believe the best in everybody. But, again, none of us were there. Even the people that were there aren't those people. It's just, yeah, it's just, like, I feel like... I said this when we first discussed it... I can't offer my any more opinion about the actual factual things that happened because we we weren't there. And uh... I do want to say I I feel like, and this is maybe kind of like understanding where Alice is coming from. I do want to say that I I underst- I feel like it is possible to honor and respect the stories of these people coming out. And also not be judgmental of the person who is at the center of all this controversy, Joss Whedon. I think it's possible to do that because none of us, like like is mentioned in this letter, none of us really know what it's like to be in that situation. We don't know the pressures. We don't know the industry. We don't know what that's like to be under that much pressure, to be that to be in that position of power, to be around these personalities and these all these roles and who all have these uh, demands of their own. Um, and, you know, just from this place of not knowing what that's like to judge someone who crumbles under that pressure or does something cruel or anything of that nature... I don't think, I mean, you can say that uh, from the from the perspective of these people who are speaking out about it, uh, you know, obviously that's a hurtful, wrong thing to do. But I don't know if myself in those shoes, if I would succumb to that or if I would, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not expressing this very articulately, but I get the idea of not needing to judge Joss Whedon while also um, standing with the people who have spoken out about their experience and supporting them and not dismissing them because that contributes to more potential abuse and more, you know, just inaccountability, which is something that I think nobody wants. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the... You know, I'm not going to not ever watch Joss Whedon's shows again. If that, you know, I, th- I think I think this letter is getting at that there's a lot of people that are just like done with Joss Whedon because of all of this. And that for me would be a shame, especially for this show, because so many people worked on it, not just him. And yeah, it's just anyway, moving on. Uh, Ray Fisher and the cast of Justice League flat out refused to do their scenes because they didn't like the new studio mandated material. Joss was 
uh, tasked with completely retooling Jack Snyder's existing movie in only six months. Him calling out the actors for wasting time throwing tantrums over creative decisions is not abuse. Creatives on Buffy and Angel seem to suggest in interviews that Charisma Carpenter didn't bother to notify any of the other producers about her pregnancy immediately after she found out she couldn't uh, reach Joss, who was running three shows at the time. Uh, So the production team didn't find out about it until a month before shooting. Consequently, the crew and creatives were forced to do an obscene amount of work in a ridiculously short amount of time to redo the show's entire upcoming season. Joss calling out Charisma's irresponsibility was not abuse. Could he have been calmer about it? Maybe. But that sort of thing could have gotten the show cancelled and put everyone out of work. Some frustration was warranted. The media has been over-amplifying these embellished sob stories as well as the vague and sometimes misleading complaints that these sets were uh, systemically toxic. Buffy actress Michelle Trachtenberg posted the grossly misleading claim that Joss was never allowed to be alone with her, when in reality, her being a minor at the time meant that she was not legally allowed to be alone with anyone on set per California labour law. Uh, Staffers on these particular productions suggested many of the people involved simply didn't get along. When you work long hours under tight deadlines with people you clash with, the environment is going to be miserable. There's, uh, that's no one's fault, that's just life. Okay, so yeah, I have no idea how obviously true and what actually happened with the whole Ray Fisher and the cast of Justice League, like if they were being, you know, um, difficult to work with and but I understand why everyone in that situation would be really really frustrated he's been you know Joss Whedon's been brought in last minute it's not a passion project like all of his tv shows were he's been brought in to just fix this thing um and that that's already kind of like he probably don't want to be there but the studio is paying him so he's there it's a job the same way all the actors are there and if they're not happy to be there either it creates these like just cesspools of negative energy and there's bound to be explosions and bad just you know no one's gonna be happy um and it just breeds more problems and that's an unfortunate thing that this happened with that film like I've not watched it um the either of the Justice League cuts (sighs) because like as a Joss fan I wouldn't watch it as a Joss Whedon film because for me it's not a Joss Whedon film and yeah, I don't know. It it's difficult because yeah, I feel like that was just bound to explode everyone's gonna because no one seems happy to be there. And that's unfortunate. Really all that we do know is that Ray Fisher and a lot of the other Justice League cast were feeling that a lot of the behavior was unprofessional. And I guess that's something that, you know, we just have to we just have to kind of respect as something that happened and then I I feel like um we can go ahead and maybe I'm jumping a little ahead here but I think we can debunk the theory that Charisma Carpenter didn't let production know about her pregnancy because I do remember like about two years ago some entertainment journalist printed that exact rumor and Charisma had corrected them on Twitter and uh, Stephen DeKnight confirmed Charisma's account. So I found the tweet and I can read it for you. He responded to Charisma saying, I was a writer on Angel and directed the amazing Charisma Carpenter when she was at, what, about eight months? We knew from the start and wrote her pregnancy 
into the show. So there is a first-person account telling us that Charisma Carpenter did not hide her pregnancy from production. They knew at the beginning, which I, I, I don't... I mean... I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for her to have to go all these years kind of living under this um, rumor, this destructive rumor, kind of casting her in this negative light. Um, I, I, I imagine if we can just shift the focus a little bit on the other side of this power dynamic like how she must have felt or how Ray Fisher must have felt or how these actors must have felt who kind of had to deal with somebody in a position of power over them. And I think you mentioned when, like you said in your response, when you work long hours under tight deadlines with people you clash with, the environment is going to be miserable. That's no one's fault. I think the only thing that I would point out is that I think you're missing out on the fact of the power dynamic here. Because people can clash, and that's natural. But when one person has more power than the other, it's not a clash, it's domination. Like, you can't you can't just clash with someone who has the power to take away your income. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not, a, that's not an even fight. That's just inherently um, unbalanced as a relationship. Um... But I, I don't know, again, like, obviously it was a very difficult situation to kind of be thrown into, and none of us knows what that would be like. Um, but, I, like, again, I go back to the thing of when you're in a position of power, you just, the ends can't justify the means. Just because you want to make a good movie, you can't do whatever it takes to make a good movie if that involves traumatizing people and hurting people and causing pain and that kind of stuff ultimately these are just just like flashes in a pan they're so ephemeral and transient these movies they're so like it was so important in 2017 justice league was being advertised and there were banners and billboards today no one gives a fuck about that movie it's over it's It's not that important I think like throughout the all of uh, through all of this letter, like my main point is going to be like we weren't there, no one knows what happened, and like yeah, we can only like I guess we can try and put ourselves on both sides in in their shoes, but at the at the end of the day, like you say, when you're in charge of people's livelihoods and their future career and life and mental well being, really, when they're on set, all those people are under your care, right? So. It's difficult. The whole Michelle Trachtenberg thing, I, again, I don't have, like, major knowledge on this. This is, like, media. Like, what you're saying about the Twitter thing with um, Charisma Carpenter. Like, things get misconstrued so easy. Someone puts a lie on the internet and it could be years before that lie is, like, comes out as a lie. Do you know what I mean? So many people read it and it just becomes... People talk about it like it's fact and it's not. Or it might not be. Um... Yeah, so like this, like obviously it's like it should be right that a child on set is not going to be left alone with anyone. They should always have their chaperone there. Um, But that clearly doesn't always happen on sets. 
Yeah, and I think just the energy she came with that was so resentful towards uh, Joss Whedon, I think that comes from, I mean, that's there for a reason. Like, where there's smoke, there's fire. Obviously, there was some tension. There was some kind of, you know, offense at some point towards her that she felt like. And anytime you, like... It's it's like an it's a Newtonian law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you act in a way that causes people to feel bad or to feel hurt, there's gonna be a reaction and that's gonna come back to you. So I feel like just you know, just in terms of the laws of physics are all kind of uh coming into play at the same time and all of these forces that were unleashed outwardly are coming back to this one central little piece on the on the chessboard and just like it feels like it's all coming at one time like a big tsunami but it's been building for a long time i feel like i think all of this has been all these energies have been out there gathering force and steam and they were never resolved obviously and then you know just the the one the final straw on the camel's back the dam just had to get one crack down the middle and all of it just burst through at once and again like we'll talk about this a little bit more but in this culture we're in uh it is sometimes the backlash is very intense and doesn't allow for conversation or nuance or any kind of kind of um i don't know understanding and compassion and i get that and we can talk about that a little bit more okay so as we continue with the letter uh alice continues conversely if you work under those conditions with people you are professionally compatible with the experience can be quite rewarding the aforementioned two troubled sets aside every other joss whedon helms production seems to tell a very different and much more positive story The cast of Firefly, for example, will talk you to death about how much they love working with him. They've done so at every opportunity and haven't stopped. Cast member Summer Glau even claimed he was the one who helped her through the anxiety of her first acting job. Everyone on Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog voluntarily worked with him on that self-financed project for free The casts of Dollhouse and Avengers have had nothing but good things to say about him, and recently the cast of The Nevers claims they were gutted by his decision to leave the project because they liked working with him so much. So many actors, writers, and other creatives from these productions have repeatedly and happily jumped at the chance to work with him again. The fact that the vast majority of his colleagues claim to have had such positive experiences and working relationships with him should say far more about Joss as a person than a handful of complaints. So here's my main thing with this, and I had the same thing to say about the whole, anyone that's been talking about like the whole like Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing. Having a past track record of being totally a cool person or being in a relationship and you've never abused any of your past girlfriends or whatever does not mean that you will not in the future or have not in another relationship. So for this, again, we went there, we don't know. Just because other sets and other people have had great experiences with someone 
doesn't mean that other people haven't and that at any other time they haven't been an awful person. Like, you can't say that. Someone could be, like, an angel 99% of the time and 1% of the time be a horrible human being. Like, for me, you know, like, in relationships, you know, Johnny Depp's ex-girlfriends are all, you know, happy and they had great relationships or whatever, but you're not that person that's now with them and you don't know what that that relationship and that and it's same as with a set it's like a mix of people that time that place you don't know what's going on in their personal lives it's a complete it's like a chemical reaction and it has to be that exact thing that could lead to something so you can't say that like in my eyes i you can't say they've never done it before so it definitely didn't happen is is for me it's not a valid it's not a valid point like i understand that and, and like, because I can say, I was on set with Joss Whedon. I've been directed by Joss Whedon. He was fantastic. I had a great time. Everyone on set seemed happy. But I can't say that he's never done anything just because I had a great experience on set with him. Yeah, totally. Because people are complicated. Like, we all have heaven and hell within us. And I think we're all a little flawed, a little broken and there's no such thing there is no such thing as one person who is all good or all bad these these qualities can only exist in relation to each other so we have the capacity for both within us and like you said Laura I'm sure, like I'm sure Whedon has no doubt Whedon has no doubt run like a fun positive set and he has so many good relationships with many folks but I think just like we shouldn't only talk about the bad like you said we shouldn't use the good to discount the bad they exist together in a kind of i don't want to say harmony but you know it's it's like um i don't know i i think i've reached a dead end here (laughs) it's it's difficult to talk about the facts that that people are complicated and it's difficult to come to a kind of um i don't know i, I mean like at this point my, my brain is is as dry as, as like my my mouth and like i i feel uh, like for all of this our overarching thing and like what basically the comments we made at the start are like you know ceasing you're not gonna change and that's just like how we feel about it and I'll read the next bit. Um, in commentary, the musical, a DVD bonus feature for Dr. Horrible, uh, Joss wrote and performed a song called Heartbroken. Even though this gag commentary was intended to be a bit of tongue-in-cheek humour, you can sense an underlying fear in the, in that song, a creator's fear of being pick, pick, picked apart by his audience. That song has become sadly prophetic. Uh, I've seen countless posts, many by supposed fans of his creations, um, picking apart every comment, every dumb joke he's ever made, every plot line he's ever written, interpreting everything in the most uh, uncharitable light possible, looking to smugly point out signs that this person was this evil monster all along. I saw a few particularly disgusting posts speculating that the stressful and toxic environment Joss supposedly created on set contributed to the health problems that caused Angel actor Andy Hallett's untimely death four years after the show ended. In reality, it was caused by complications from an accidental infection. Okay, I see, I don't read much online and like people having conversations about like really in-depth like stuff like this um 
I personally don't like talking about people's personal lives because it you don't know them and you know you can't possibly know what was going on at the time so like for me I would never even think to like talk about all this stuff do you know what I mean like yeah I, I don't know and and like the, being picked apart by your audience unfortunately that's like part of being an actor and a writer and a filmmaker it is literally just part of it that's literally what you're doing you're putting your artwork out there to be assessed by people essentially and depending on how well they they receive it you will be successful or not successful that's really unfortunate but that's just how it is um yeah i mean yeah there's going to be loads of people like we said everybody watches things differently there's going to be people that are going to go back and pick apart and go well this line here clearly shows that blah blah but yeah i mean that's not something that i would do like i said i'm at the end of rewatching buffy i don't think i've picked up on anything like super bad with it I think you can tell possibly that nearer the end maybe everyone's not having as fun time on set I don't know sometimes you can see that I don't know again we weren't we're not there it's it's impossible to know yeah I do feel like um and I'm not referring to you specifically Alice but just in general the sometimes the, the thing that happens in fandom is and not just in fandom but just in everything in our lives is that when we really like something or we dislike something, we tend to identify ourselves with our likes and our dislikes. So if I love, and I'll use, just talk about myself in this example, if I love Firefly and I identify with my love for that and I call myself a brown coat, when someone just says, oh, Firefly is garbage, you know, that makes me feel bad because criticism of the thing that I like that I've identified myself with is not just an attack on that thing it's an attack on me and when I identify myself with something it's almost like I'm limiting myself like I'm like I'm tying myself to something and now I'm no longer a free actor and I guess it just goes to the point of how do you be involved in things without becoming entangled in them? Like you can enjoy something and you can you can love it. You can appreciate you can appreciate it for what it is and you can have had an experience with it that is meaningful to you and that is valuable for you. But you if you don't just like if you don't if you can just kind of like humor me when I say this, if you can not tie yourself to it, don't identify yourself with it, then I feel like no matter what happens, you can have that experience without having the kind of roller coaster ride of, you know, and <laughs> I don't know. Uh, do you have any other more ideas before we continue? I mean, I was just going to like kind of, say that fandoms themselves obviously can be kind of toxic like i don't know i follow a couple uh one of my animes i like follow like a, a a fan facebook page and i only go there like you know people share their artwork and their things and i'm always like if you haven't got anything nice to say then don't say anything at all kind of thing but you get people that get really worked up about like the smallest thing and it's like just keep scrolling just ignore it but people like really 
fans really sometimes have to like they're so into it to a point where it just becomes kind of toxic and that's when I stop enjoying things so yeah I try to kind of keep mostly out of of that side of things like and the same as what you were just saying I don't know like I'm never gonna I don't let this take away from me sitting and enjoying these tv shows because for me you know these tv shows are like part of my life I grew up watching them and I can't let this get in the way of like yeah something that's been like a part of my life and I try just yeah I try not to get yeah yeah I, I totally understand that I mean for me too so much of his work is at a like growing up has been very valuable for me okay I'll continue with the letter Yes. So Alice continues, can you imagine thousands of people assuming the absolute worst about you because of a few petty workplace squabbles, ignoring all the good you've done and all the positive relationships you've built, reducing you as a person and your legacy down to a few bad moments? Fans take for granted just how difficult it is to create the content they love. I was exhausted just reading about Joss's efforts to run Buffy, Angel, and Firefly simultaneously, doing his best to avert all the complications arising on all three, and keeping everything running smoothly, not to mention struggling with the studios on the films he he made. Being in such a high-pressure position in the film and TV industry means you can't be a pushover. You cannot tolerate people who make life on the production harder for everyone else and you'll run into people you simply don't get along with that doesn't make someone a bad person that's just reality my my straight up reaction to that last bit is kind of like if I'm working with an actor and they're making my life a misery I don't shout at them I don't abuse them I go to the, the whoever's paying for this production and I say I'm struggling working with this actor. Have we got it in the budget to get rid of him and get someone new in? Or do you know what I mean? There's always a way to do it where you're not going to be... F- I don't know. There's there's always ways, okay? And I feel like, you know, just because someone's difficult to work with doesn't give you the right to, like, yell abuse at them, for example. And there's also the thing that I think it's important to remember that as much as we think we know celebrities because we've watched so many interviews of them or we've seen their shows or we we feel these intimate connections with these people that we've never met because we've had this kind of relationship with them for years and years and years this kind of one-sided relationship they don't know you exist but you've had this relationship where you've seen their shows you feel like they're a friend or someone that you communicate with in your own kind of way, someone you think you know, I think it's important for all of us to remember that as much as we think we know other people, we don't really know them, especially celebrities. When you love a celebrity, you don't really love them. You love the idea of them. You love who you think they are. And who they present themselves as to you when you see them, uh, you know, singing carpool karaoke on James, on like James Corden or something. Like you, you watch these people 
and you think you know them, but it's critical to remember that you don't really know them. The only person you know is yourself. It's it's it, it, You can fall into the trap of thinking you know someone, and then... Uh, I guess the, the main thing is to not operate under beliefs or assumptions. Don't concretize your assumptions uh, to, to, the, to the, I guess... Um, to the damage of people who have really experienced some kind of hurt. Yeah. Yeah, we can't assume that, you know, what what really happened or whatever, and we can't belittle anything or... Even if there's like a 1% chance, and Alice, I know that you're, you've, you're confident in your own relationship with Joss and his work and him as an individual... But even if there's a 1% possibility that the allegations that are being levied against him are accurate, I wonder, just like, would you be comfortable uh, defending him? Just like if there's even a chance that he did what he was doing, your defense of him would be, I guess, I don't know, a damaging or uh, it would contribute to a culture that is just oppressive to the people who have encountered abuse. And if they're, if everything is wrong and he really is kind of like the Job or the Jesus or someone who's experiencing all this suffering just out of nowhere, just, you know, like, God has heaped upon him all of this pain and suffering and he's having to deal with it. It could be true, but I feel like you have to hedge your bets and you have to not dismiss this just based on that 0.01% possibility that what they're saying is true. And if that is true, then you don't, like at least for me, I'll speak for myself, I wouldn't want to be the person who defends the perpetrator of abuse. I wouldn't want to be that person, even if there's a 1% possibility. You don't have to believe it, but you have to at least not defend. You know, you, you don't have to necessarily believe everything you hear, but don't, I, I guess I wouldn't want to dismiss or belittle or um, suppress or, you know, be so gung-ho about something that I don't know anything about. At least that's my, that's my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very, very easy to sit back at home and, and kind of like accuse anyone of anything and, and say what your, your you know, opinion is. But <laughs> like it's you say... It's a difficult subject. Right. Finishing up with our discussion. Um, the last part of this letter. Um, I understand Joss has made mistakes over the years. I'm just not sure why I seem to be one of the few who's not up in arms about it. He's done nothing worse than be a flawed human like the rest of us. Fans had no right to put him on a pedestal, except uh, infallibility from him, um, then angrily rip him to shreds when those expectations weren't met. It's not fair to expect that from any human being. The reaction to recent revelations feels like a betrayal, not only of a creator who often pushed himself to the brink to bring um, us the content we loved, but of the ideas that content preached, that flawed people shouldn't be written off as hopeless and could still have something to offer. 
The idea that we may not get any of these stories with that hopeful message from this creator due to sanctimonious mob mentality really stings. It's a slap in the face that audiences can root for flawed fictional antiheroes, yet condemn their creator for the crime of not being a saint. And I just can't help but feel a little heartbroken. So, I mean, I'm... I'm not even sure if it is even the fans, like, because, like, me as a fan, I'm not personally up in arms or whether I feel for the people that have gone through whatever happened and, you know, part of me is obviously upset if, you know, someone who I think is, you know, one of the greatest creators of things that I love never make something again possibly because of all this so like you know I'm on you know I want to kind of feel for both sides here but at the same time I'm never ever going to be like up in arms and I don't know I don't I don't think I ever put as a fan personally put him on like a pedestal other than saying that he was one of my favorite writers directors along with many other people um and I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't suddenly just the same way I'm not gonna accuse I'm just not gonna accuse anyone of anything because I don't know I'm not in that position and it's really got nothing to unfortunately it's got nothing to do with us and yeah it's really got nothing to do with us is it I will (laughs) yeah you're right you're right and that's like we don't really know but I will say that I really do feel for I really do feel for you Alice I I get you I get where you're coming from because I also I I also want to see a Dr. Horrible too I you know I want to see I want to see more Firefly I want to see the nevers with him involved i do want to see these things because i do admire uh his artistry i i think he has so much to offer artistically to the world um still and it's just this if i was to respond if there's something i can say and like this is not just uh, maybe i'm i'm not saying the right thing necessarily you know this is not like um a polished crest smile like press release kind of thing but i'd say like just as a person if if you want to just live and not feel bad about this i think you just like we there's so much about this that we just can't control and there's so many forces at play that are so much larger than us as individual people, as fans, and even the people involved. Like, I think if I was citing an example with Harvey Weinstein, and of course the crimes are not comparable, that that guy did some monstrous things. But I think just like the forceful slamming of Harvey Weinstein it wasn't just about Weinstein. I think it was the dam breaking on years and years and decades of these instances and these abuses of power. And, you know, all of that stuff just building up like a volcano dormant for so long needs to explode. And I I think that as people and as fans of this work, what we have to do is just to allow it to happen and to, you know, 
um, focus on on what we um, appreciate about the work. And, you know, I think if, like, the TV show Angel is interesting for me because it's kind of about redemption. It's kind of about, um, and I, this is totally off the dome, I'm, I'm just thinking in the moment, but Angel is about somebody coming to terms with the many crimes they committed, the, the, all the hurt they caused. And the whole show was about doing the work. Every day you do the work. It's a life's work. There's no spiking the football in the end zone. There's no win. There's no winning. There's no outcome that's just a clean snipping of the ribbon that, that, you know, opens everything up again. It's not like that. It's just the act of redemption is a daily uh, task that you do diligently and without worrying about ever um, uh, coming to an outcome where everything is complete and finished and done and I'm in and I'm, I'm finished with what I did and all the harm that I caused has been made up. It's not transactional. It can't be quantified. It's not like you're negative 10 and you can add 20 and you'll be 10. It's not like that. You do you do what you can every day and it takes a life to kind of make up for what you did or I don't know like the ending of Angel we don't know if they won or lost you know what I mean like they're in that alleyway and there's like a dragon and there's like a hundred things and there's like all these creatures and it's raining and half of them are dead and half of them are dying and you don't know what's going to happen to them and that's the point and it's so amazing because this was he wrote a, it's in the work which is this idea that it's not about winning it's the battle is for always the battle continues and i think in this situation if Joss Whedon is a man of any humility, I think that he has a place in society that can be valuable and that can help people and that can spread positivity and that can be something that is helpful and pushes change in a positive way. I think he can be a part of that. And it's just about doing the work. And for us as fans, I know that we it sucks it, it's a bummer that so much of this work that we love is now being stained or being, you know, blemished in some kind of way. But we don't have to look at it like that because, you know, we had our own experiences with it and nobody can touch that. That's our own thing. And, and uh, nobody can blemish that. The blemish is on the outside. What we experience inside and what we took from it and what we internalized and what we found beautiful and compelling and funny and how it helped us, that's our own experience and we can keep that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of having your own experiences with things, like I know plenty of people that love Buffy. They're not Whedon fans. They don't watch other Whedon shows. Do you know what I mean? They watch that show. How many movies... I mean, I watch countless movies. I don't always necessarily pay attention to who's directing or who's doing what. Who, you know what I mean? You can still enjoy things without worrying about, I don't know, how it's made, what's happened. But yeah, I guess I want to finish up with saying 
that I hope, especially from now, that in Hollywood and in everything else, that any time any of this, anything like this happens, that um, there's a place that anyone that's going through any abuse of any kind, that they can tell someone and that it will get fixed on the spot kind of thing. Because, as I said it before when we discussed this, Hollywood at the minute is, like, far from perfect and the whole um, kind of scene, there's been so many, like, things wrong with just how how it's done and I hope that we move forward to a place where, you know, nothing like this will hopefully happen again. If we can build a more compassionate, understanding society, a community where it's not just like we dehumanize it's so big that we dehumanize these figures and just cast them aside when they've performed their purpose. But we all know each other and we all listen to each other and we all talk to each other. And like you wouldn't cancel your father if he says something crazy. You wouldn't cancel your children or your aunt or uncle. You would talk to them and and have compassion and love for them. And, you know, if they are in a position of power and are causing some kind of destruction, you will stand up to them, but not in a way that involves any kind of anger towards them personally, but just because that's the right thing to do. Because people in power should be held accountable for their transgressions regardless of how you feel about them, whether you love them, whether they're your family, friend, idol, whatever. The right thing to do is to stand up to people who are abusing their power, but that doesn't mean you have to hate them. That doesn't mean you have to cast them aside and throw them away forever. That means you take them out of a position where they're causing damage, but you don't hate them, you redeem them as much as you can. And hopefully we can come to a society where it's a little more... I guess, loving, and we are accountable to the emotional consequences of our actions, and we're not just typing a whole bunch of uh, terrible stuff on Twitter, you know, we're not just harassing people and uh, tweeting slurs and whatever. Um, No, thank you, Alice. I think we've discussed that topic enough. (laughs) I think, yeah, I mean, we delved into it lightly in episode one and then more in episode two after a letter um this has gone well and truly into it um yeah and obviously like everything that we've said in this podcast may not be completely correct maybe we had we might have said some things that are wrong or we didn't get everything perfect but you know this is just uh i mean it's it's a vulnerable thing to have a conversation and um yeah it may not have been fully coherent at times in terms of like getting my sentences out but you know I I never I said it in a little bit earlier you know if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all that's kind of like just one of my main things I never ever want to offend anybody and as you were just saying if you do it's like always willing to take feedback and you know, change for the better. Mm-hmm. Always willing to learn and change and grow. And if anybody has any thoughts about this particularly that they'd like to send in, I'm happy to read it and change my perspective and learn, you know, and uh, 
learn from other people's experiences and perspectives too. Cool. Right, moving on to some really great stuff. That was all of our letters. And uh, now we're going to talk about Firefly because we're going to do a little something called Firefly Back in the Skies. We're going to be talking about what is definitely one of my favourite shows of all time, Chirag. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Definitely mine as well. (laughs) Yeah, we love Firefly and we basically are going to do a podcast much like this one but instead of talking about the nevers we're going to talk about firefly i haven't actually rewatched this show for a while i watched it enough in college i think to kind of last my lifetime but i'm looking forward to having a good rewatch um so that we can come back and discuss uh episode by episode um stay tuned so if you have any letters for firefly back in the skies you can send them to fireflybits at gmail.com so that's firefly b-i-t-s as in back in the skies at gmail.com uh the first episode where we're going to be reviewing serenity parts one and two uh yep that's right we're gonna go properly chronological in episode order that'll be released in two weeks and we can't wait we're really excited to revisit firefly right i'm super excited too yeah yeah i'm uh yeah, like huge. Fi- I've, I mean, I am a massive nerd, and I love conventions and action figures and cosplaying. I'm gonna have to share. I think some of my, well, you can probably find them on if anyone's been interested enough to look at my social medias. Then you can find me dressed as Jane Cobb. You can find me dressed as River. Uh, two different River cosplays I've done actually. I actually went to a Halloween and which was in London in the UK. I think it was like 2010, I think, um, which was like a three-day weekend uh, convention, and that was fantastic. That was, uh, that was a really good one. I might, have, might even have to wear my, uh, my Jane Cobb hat whilst we record the podcasts. And in an auditory podcast, I'm sure the listeners will very much appreciate will, your wearing of a hat they will feel, that they visually cannot see. They'll feel the energy... Of my Jane Cobbness <laughs> <laughs> as I talk. <laughs> okay, so uh, I guess I'll just uh, wrap this thing up. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, you can find the Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you stream. Uh, for more content, you can visit hbothenevers.com. You can find at, uh, find this place at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers and at hbothenevers podcast and at hbothenevers podcast without an A on Twitter. Any comments or questions about the Nevers, you can send to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please rate and review our podcast. Thank you. Uh, yeah thank you for listening so yeah we look forward to seeing you if you come and listen to firefly back in the skies which we hope you do but that's all for this uh letters episode of the nevers so uh thank you everyone that's listening thank you for everybody that wrote in we've you know had quite a lot to discuss about a show that we've already heavily discussed there's just so much to the nevers (laughs) Uh, and i can't wait for the second half of the season um thank you chirag do you want to remind everyone of your socials? You can find me on Twitter at Mayan Mailman. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram. You you can find me in the outer reaches of space, flying on a ship with a crew of people that are staying away from the government. Are you wearing a brown coat? Um, yes, actually. How do you know? <laughs> uh, if you want to find me online and look up my now quite ancient cosplays, because, you know, I haven't been to a convention in a while, uh, you can check out my Instagram, which is laurajp1721. Yeah, but other than that, see you next time on the Nevers Podcast. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. 